comes in, uh, the Republicans can simply dismantle this committee. You're listening to the news on RTHK. Live across Hong Kong, this is Radio 3. Morning, it's 8.03 in Hong Kong, and welcome to the final Money Talk of the Week on Friday the 14th of October. This is Peter Lewis with the Business and Finance Headlights. Consumer prices in the US rose more than expected last month. The core consumer price index, which strips out volatile food and energy costs, rose 6.6% on an annual basis last month. That's its fastest pace in 40 years. Following the data, Fed Fund's futures markets pricing in a 95% probability of a fourth consecutive 75 basis point rate hike at the Fed's next meeting on November the 2nd, and a 65% chance of another 75 basis points increase in December. There were renewed lockdowns in Shanghai on Thursday, after 47 cases of COVID-19 were reported for the previous day, the most in the city since mid-July. Multiple city districts confirmed the closure of entertainment venues such as bars and cinemas and close contacts of positive cases were sent to quarantine hotels and their buildings were subject to temporary lockdowns. Bloomberg News reported Thursday that Chief Executive John Lee is considering easing property taxes and visa restrictions in his policy address. One of the moves, reportedly under consideration, is to make it easier for Hong Kong-based companies to hire non-local workers in 13 priority professions, including asset management, fintech and ESG financial services. The government may also relax rules on a 15% stamp duty that non-resident property buyers need to pay. UK Prime Minister Liz Truss is preparing to reverse her proposed budget of unfunded tax cuts in order to rebuild market confidence in the government's fiscal policies, according to reports. The discussions come at the same time as the Bank of England's emergency £65 billion bond-buying programme ends later today. On today's Money Talk, we're joined by Andrew Ferris, CEO of Econosis Advisory, and Raymond Young, Greater China Chief Economist at ANZ. With a view from India is Toby Lawson, the CEO of Societe Generale India. On Wall Street overnight, US stocks staged one of their most dramatic turnarounds in history. The S&P 500 dropped 2.4% shortly after the opening bell in reaction to the hotter-than-expected inflation figures. However, stocks then rallied and the S&P 500 was up 2.6% at 3,670 by the close, snapping a six-day losing streak. That was the fifth largest intraday reversal from a low in the history of the S&P 500. The Dow ended the session 828 points or 2.8% higher at 30,039 following a 1,300-point turnaround, and that was the biggest reversal in the Dow since August 2011. The Nasdaq Composite closed 2.3% higher at 10,649, recovering from a decline of 3.2%, and that's the fourth largest turnaround on record. In Europe, the Stock 600 Index closed 0.9% higher. London's FTSE 100 advanced a third of a percent. Hong Kong stocks continued their slide towards 13-year lows on Thursday. 
by the close. The Hang Seng Index had tumbled 312 points, or 1.9%, to 16,389. It's the sixth consecutive day of losses, and the benchmark index is around 140 points away from hitting a 13-year low going back to May 2009. For the week so far, the Hang Seng has lost 7.6% and is down 30% for the year. The tech index slumped 3.4%, extending its losses for 2022 to over 44%. And on the mainland, the Shanghai Composite Index fell a third of a percent to 3,016, leaving it down over 17% year-to-date. In the commodities markets, Brent crude oil settled 2.3% higher at $94.57 a barrel. Gold is lower, trading at $1,663 an ounce. The yield on the 10-year Treasury bond reached as high as 4.07%. That's the highest since 2008, before retreating to settle at 3.95%, still up five basis points from Wednesday. In the UK, the 10-year gilt yield swung 42 basis points between the high and low of the day, as rumours swirled that UK Prime Minister Liz Truss will make a U-turn on her plans for unfunded tax cuts. The yield settled 25 basis points lower at 4.18%. The US dollar index initially surged following the inflation data, but then was sold hard as stocks rebounded. The euro right now trading at 97 and three quarters cents. The Japanese yen hit its lowest level since 1990 on Thursday of 147.67. It's currently trading a little bit better than that at 147.31 against the dollar. Sterling surged 2% to $1.13 and eight Hong Kong dollars and 88 cents. And the Chinese yuan is at 7.18 in offshore markets. Bitcoin over 1% firmer at 19,300. Asia stock markets are surging at the open this morning. The SX200 in Australia up 1.7%. The Nikkei 225 has gained 2.25% shortly after the open. The Cosby in South Korea up 1.75%. And after six days of losses, finally looks like the Hang Seng is going to put in a gain. Futures markets pointing to an advance of 250 points at the open this morning. The time's 8.09. Let's go and welcome our guests. As always on a Friday morning, we have with us Andrew Ferris, the CEO of Econosis Advisory. Morning, Andrew. Good morning. And on the phone, we have with us Raymond Young, Greater China Chief Economist at ANZ. Morning to you, Raymond. Morning, Peter. Um, let's start with that consumer data, price index data uh, in the US. The CPI closed 8 point, climbed 8.2% in the 12 months to September, down from 8.3% in August but above economists' forecasts of 8.1%. And compared with the previous month, it rose 0.4%, which is up from a rise of 0.1% in August. Core CPI rose 6.6% on an annual basis, up from 6.3% in August, and the fastest pace in 40 years. Andrew, do you want to kick off? It shows, doesn't it, the Fed's still got quite a lot of work to do here if it wants yeah, to get inflation strangely down. Strangely enough, if one looks at the last four numbers, which we started with a nine number, then we went down to 8.8, then 8.5, then 8.3, then 0. So effectively, if you want to look at a quarter plus, the numbers are going down and sort of stabilizing. 
Well, I think, you know, we, we, we jumped a little bit prematurely. What I find much more frightening is in the core number, in other words, that excludes food and, uh, and, and energy, which was the, the main bugbearer of all that, is, is that housing is now adding to inflation. Mm. Remember the good old days when the major driver of inflation in the States was the price of second-hand cars? <laughs> Come on. Yeah. You know, so this, it is, it, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm puzzled. But you it know, is I'm a problem, to, isn't it? Yeah, it's but what, dri- out. what drives inflation in the States? I mean, we, can, we cannot have it uh, b- both ways, that it is uh, excess demand uh, or it is uh, uh, supply constraints. I am looking at it and I'm still scratching my head, I'm afraid. Raymond, what do you think? Has there been any progress at all on getting inflation down? Cleveland Fed President Loretta Mester said on Tuesday she doesn't think so, but what do you think? No, it takes time. It was a painful process. The Fed like to press uh, the CPI and look at this core inflation. It's basically close to 60% of the overall uh, CPI number. Now, of course, that's the Fed may not just simply look at the, the CPI, but also the PCE inflation as well. But I just look at this, the, the, the composition of the inflation data and uh, look at uh, look at this shelter cost. You know, the housing basically have a 0.7% month-on-month increase. Mm. That's huge. And also medical costs as well is uh, 7% CPI. Uh, also rose uh, about 1%, you know, month-on-month. That's, that's huge. You know, annualize it, then we can see why the Fed members remain very hawkish recently. They, they really like to manage the expectation that the Fed will do whatever it takes to uh, press down the inflation number. So d- does this spreading out into areas like housing, what they call shelter costs in the U.S., does it suggest that inflation is now becoming entrenched in, uh, in the economy and also in consumers' minds? That, uh, yeah, look, look, you know, right at the beginning, I just think that, you know, at the beginning is more a supply-side issue, right? We talked about a year ago, it's the supply chain disruption, things like that. But now, uh, look at that, it's become more endogenous, which is uh, very domestically true. So that, that makes the problem... Uh, you know, more complicated than before. Andrew? Uh, gosh. I'll pass on that one. Okay, let's, let's, <laughs> let's move on. All right. So let, well, let me ask you both then, um, where's this all going to end? We've, we've got some high inflation in the US. Certainly looks like it's going to persist near term. The Fed is hiking aggressively. Looks like we're almost certain to get a fourth consecutive 75 basis point rate increase next month. How long can the Fed keep on hiking without inflation coming down before we get something breaking in the economy and also in the financial markets as well? How long can this keep going on for? Well, presumably they might need uh, at least one more quarter of uh, at the very least stable inflation, which I think they are about to get. Okay, before they say, well, we will hold back to see for yet another quarter. So I'm looking for another six months before we have a very clear sign that the Fed might have done. And this, of course, it is incredibly boring and is not at all forecasting. And the Fed and I and everybody else would be ashamed. It depends on the data. So I'm not going to tell you. I will look on the data and then I will look at what's going to happen. Mm. Raymond, what, what do you think? How, how long can this go on? Do you worry that maybe, you know, soon something's going to crash the financial markets? Because there's huge volatility going on, isn't there, in stocks, bonds, currencies all over the world while this is going on in, uh, uh, in the U.S.? It's uh, highly volatile, and I, I can't explain the turnaround last night. Too. <laughs> That's the market reaction. It's quite surprising. No, look, uh, I think in terms of economic fundamentals, it's clearly point to a 
um, a longer and uh, more intensified uh, hiking cycle, and we have not uh, had this experience uh, for for decades. So mm. now, <laughs> probably good. Well, it's uh, something that uh, a lot of investors have not experienced before. And meanwhile, uh, Peter, in the two other biggest economies in the world, the macroeconomics are completely different. That's why I'm fed up with uh, Eurocentricity. Okay, in China, what we have is uh, a recession which is completely man-made. I'm not criticizing the COVID zero. It is or it isn't. Lift it and the Chinese economy flies. And in Japan, I adore the Japanese. They are absolutely not blinking. Okay, they have zero interest rates and uh, they are going to continue to have zero interest mm -hmm. rates and they want inflation to accelerate, particularly wages to increase. Absolutely nothing to do with what's happening either in the European Union or in the United States or for that matter in China. You know, I, th I think we, we, we are sort of sleepwalking on uh, two completely different paths. One is completely man-made. The Japanese and, uh, and uh, Chinese macroeconomics have nothing to do with in inverted commas market economics okay so their policies raymond let me get your thoughts on china's economy then the imf is forecasting uh china's going to grow 3.2 percent this year that is down uh, 0.1 percentage points from its previous forecast that it made in july that seems to be higher than what i've heard from a lot of economists on this show but nevertheless how much is this a headache for president uh, xi ahead of the the national congress is the economy going to be have to be his uh, his number one, uh, his number one focus uh we will see the uh, third quarter gdp next week and uh, we're looking at three percent year on year growth um and also just uh, on the quarterly basis 2.8 percent quarterly growth uh, not not a uh, a bad number considering what we are actually observing, you know, on the ground. Like the uh, property market, uh, basically, is uh, um, I would say um, have no sign of a recovery. Uh, and also, you know, uh, mentioned about this deal, COVID, how it's um, turned the um, consumption outlook to a very negative um, period. But now, I, I believe that a lot of people are expecting what uh, will happen in the uh, party congress. But this, look, this is just a party congress. This is not about, you know, whether they are going to set the uh, growth target next year and, and uh, they're expecting 4 or 5% growth. But uh, I, I also turn to uh, a very stark contrast number that we will, uh, we will get today, the China CPI and PPI number. You know, compare with, uh, especially the PPI is down to below 1%, I expect. Uh, it's a very big uh, contrast what, uh, from what we um, received from the U.S. overnight. The, the problem is, in advance of the Congress, we're seeing very hawkish statements on the zero COVID policy. The, uh, the People's Daily has now done a commentary three days in a row, basically praising the, the policy and that it's saving lives, suggesting uh, that this is going to continue after the, uh, after the Congress, when a lot of people were hoping uh, that maybe that that will be the beginning of the end of the zero COVID policy. This is a big problem, isn't it, for the economy? And this, of course, if we jump, it has a double whammy for poor Hong Kong because if, as we expect, the Fed is going to increase interest rates, that's whammy number one for Hong Kong, and by the Chinese saying we're not moving from the zero COVID, it means that 70% of Hong Kong's tourist trade stays up locked down. Hmm. Second whammy. <laughs> Raymond, what are your thoughts on what we're hearing about it's, the zero uh, COVID? Yeah, I think... Probably they would uh, see this as a decree uh, of uh, how China managed the public health crisis in the future and 
probably uh, the leadership wanted to show that uh, how different you know China managing this compared to the Western world, uh, and and they feel part of it, you know, despite this uh, economic cost. But the, the reality is that the economic impact is no different from the Fed, very hawkish Fed hike, just expressed in a different way. <laughs> it's basically mm. suppressed uh, the demand side, uh, especially China. Uh, in China, the 53 percent of the economy is service industry. The uh, non-manufacturing PMI dropped by two points uh, last month after the uh, and uh, after the, uh, some of the lockdown in the September numbers affected by Chengdu lockdown as well. So uh, now we see there's a lot more uh, medium to high risk uh, uh, areas declared by the public health authority. So we would expect that this number in the service activities will still be affected uh, this month in October. And the number of the holiday, the golden week holiday last week, was not looking good. Mm. Well, what's um, the government got to do to turn this around, to um, to try and get long-term growth back up again, um, to get consumption moving again? Because that's been a, a real drag, hasn't it? It seems to be following the old playbook of ramping up investment when there's already investments in the Chinese economy is already too high. So what's it got to do? Please, Peter, don't give us uh, such easy answers. The answer is, of course, remove the zero COVID policy. You know, one can see one can see the reasoning behind this: avoid a large number of deaths, avoiding flooding the the uh, hospital and the national uh, uh, insurance. Sorry, the national health service by, by cases. But uh, but is that all it's going to take? Just removing the zero COVID? I mean, that will obviously um, help in the short term. But does it deal with some of the long term problems that the economy has got? Well, you cannot deal with those whilst you are having a policy that effectively keeps keeps the handbrake and the foot break down you know mm. they cannot possibly turn around and says well really we should change completely the investment driven policy and go back much to consumption and also the investment driven policy should be highly more qualified and calibrated and of higher quality at the same time people clearing their throats and says yes but you can't have lockdowns you cannot not have international movements you cannot you cannot you cannot so in in a sense they've been very consistent <laughs> Mm. I mean, what do you think? What's got to be? What's got to be done? Is that going to be enough? Just removing uh, zero COVID? Yeah, I agree with Andrew. It's very consistent. I mean, in the sense that everything, all the policies, uh, is under the uh, flagship strategy now that you will hear uh, this weekend uh, at the party congress called Common Posterity. You know, look, think about why they care about the medical costs in China and try to uh, limit uh, the. Uh, or try to curb the, the, the contagious, is to some extent trying to reduce the medical burden uh, to the grassroots. Now, of course, the impact is a lot bigger, <laughs> and uh, it's up to you know they 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 deem whether this is uh, uh, worth to to uh, impact the overall economy. But uh, back back to your question, Peter, is that uh, basically they what they are looking is iron on that is more a longer term scenario of the Chinese economy, which means that now their economic policy is more a cross-cyclical adjustment rather than simply a counter-cyclical adjustment, you know, in for a short period of time. So they, what they like to do is just eyeing on more a long-term increase in productivity so that the GDP growth can be more sustainable. Um, and they still want to double the GDP, you know, by in 15 years' time, by 2035, compared mm. to 2020's level. Okay. Let me turn our attention finally to Hong Kong. Uh, Hong Kong markets continued their slide yesterday, very close now to um, 
a 13-year low going back to May 2009, although futures markets are pointing to a bounce um, this morning. Um, let me ask you, Andrew, first of all, what, what do you put this down to? Who do, who do people point the finger at for these enormous losses that they're seeing on their portfolios? Well, there you go again. You know, they're being incredibly consistent. They cannot do, sorry, there is the, the poor government. They cannot do anything about the 70 to 75 percent of Chinese tourism because it depends on China. So they have the 25 percent to deal with and uh, they are tinkering in terms of, uh, you know, 500,000 free tickets, uh, lifting stamp duty for foreigners coming in to buy. I mean, they are doing what it can be done within that particular context, but still including the three days of medical observation, which is, which is quite, quite a burden. And they are explaining this. So, yes, it is very easy to blame the government, but in the context of what it can be done and should be done, okay, uh, we're driven along by what's happening in China. Not because the Chinese are telling the Hong Kong companies, now look, you cannot lift this, you cannot lift the mm. other. It is in the context, it is consistent to say we are going to try to do what we can with the 25%. The other 75% that relies across the border. I keep emphasizing that because, mm. you know, tourism is dead in Hong Kong, literally. Mm. Raymond, final word to you then. What, what's your thoughts on the, the local market here and where do you point the finger? Um, I, I do believe this is the biggest uh, driver of the uh, overall uh, financial market through the U.S. Bank. You know, that's that's mm-hmm. the, um, uh, the S values, especially the property value here. Um, of course, the people flows, uh, like um, what they mentioned about the border reopening, things like that, uh, that would uh, still have some sentiment. Uh, impact that would boost some sentiment if we can, uh, you know, relax more. But at the same time, you know, the, I think still the biggest uh, driving force is the interest rate outlook uh, over the next uh, one or two years down the road because we have never experienced that before for uh, more than 40 years. Okay, well, thank you both very much. Have a great weekend. You heard there Raymond Young, who's Greater China Chief Economist today in Z, and Andrew Ferris, the CEO of Econosis Advisory. <laughs> You're listening to Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. RTHK Radio 3. 8.25 on the phone from India is Toby Lawson, CEO of Society General India. Morning, Toby. Good morning, Peter. Um, while we're on the topic of inflation, we've had some data out from India as well this week. In inflation in India at a five-month high driven by food prices. Consumer prices rose 7.4% last month from a year earlier, up from 7% in August. How concerned is the uh, the Reserve Bank about this? I think the Reserve Bank uh, will will have to continue to respond as other central banks have had, Peter, in terms of raising rates. We're probably expecting another 35 to 50 basis points uh, in December. Um, that'll push it to sort of six six and a quarter, with the terminal rate expected around six and a half. Um, it's uh, yeah, it's it's a constant picture happening around the world. Um, consumer prices, uh, particularly in the food sector, have, have had a big impact. Somewhat, uh, I suspect, um, monsoon related, but the monsoon's pretty, pretty good this year. So maybe it's more just a, an adjustment factor or a forward-looking view. But yeah, the Reserve Bank uh, will be concerned. They'll continue to have to tighten, and uh, at the same time, though, the, uh, the government will be looking to maintain that growth momentum, which uh, is decelerating somewhat, but still pretty strong for India. Well, I was going to say the the IMF forecast for um, India in its revised forecasts, is for India to grow 6.1% uh, next year. That's going to expand the most amongst the world's 
biggest economies. That's pretty good, isn't it, despite this uh, inflation number? Yeah, well, it, it is good. Uh, there's no doubt. I think it's one of the, it will be the, probably the fastest large economy uh, in terms of growth. But it's come down from sort of the eight, eight handle to the 6.8 for this year. And as you mentioned, 6.1 for, for next year. Uh, even the Reserve Bank themselves have brought it down to a seven handle from 7.2. Um, domestic consumption will probably drive growth. Uh, the external account will be impacted, obviously, by world uh, factors. Um, and there's been a recovery in investment demand, as well as government spending, both of which are probably sub-pre-pandemic uh, levels. So there's still some work to be done in that. Um, but overall, as you mentioned, it's a good figure, uh, good enough to see that India's uh, share of world GDP will continue to grow. How much is the Indian economy and the Indian markets uh, be dependent upon what the Fed is doing? It's having a big impact here and on other markets uh, around the world. It looks almost certain now we're going to get another 75 basis points increase uh, in November. What sort of impact is that having on India? Well, clearly, I think emerging markets get impacted most by US dollar. Uh, and uh, whilst India has a lot of domestic debt uh, the INR has uh, depreciated to what, 11% uh, to 12% um, on the back of strength in dollar index and dollar in general. So uh, I guess the impact of imported inflation is the, the most uh, obvious and uh, um, direct impact of, uh, of, a, of stronger U.S. inflation, higher U.S. rates and therefore higher U.S. dollar. And uh, the RBI have had to spend quite a lot of money to defend the currency in terms of its volatility. And uh, that's probably one impact that will continue to be have a factor. So it's the external... And uh, import inflation drive of uh, higher U.S. rates and higher U.S. dollar that probably has the most negative impact on India. But you've got a you've got an economy that's driven by a lot of domestic debt and domestic consumption, so it's somewhat insulated given the size of its economy. We've seen um, over, over in the US from the Fed minutes, in fact, that they're very concerned uh, about the inflation and they, they see that as their number one priority. So we're going to get this fourth consecutive rate hike. Doesn't seem to be doing the trick, though, does it? Because inflation is just, as we've seen from the data this week, remaining persistently high. Yeah, and I think the most significant factor about the inflation figures now is it's broad-based. You know, you could have argued supply chain and energy being the main drivers of the spike in inflation six to 12 months ago and, you know, the, the exogenous factors of Ukraine war, et cetera, China slowdown. But really now it's uh, hitting the areas of housing, uh, health and, uh, and food in the U.S. So it's broad-based and persistent. So the Fed have a, a hard road. Um, interestingly, the markets tried to see that there might be some level of peaking around the figure, even though it was higher. Uh, but I suspect that volatility is going to continue in equity markets and the Fed is still on the, uh, on the path of hiking rates. How do you explain that turnaround that we saw today, one of the biggest turnarounds in the S&P 500 and NASDAQ um, in history, despite uh, the CPI data being worse than expected? Yeah, uh, waking up to that uh, particular turnaround, uh, having looked at the inflation figure and seen the market collapse, you would say, well, that's a logical move on a higher print on inflation. But, uh, you know, as you mentioned, the highest uh, um, bottom to high swing in uh, in stocks um, really has caught everyone by surprise. And I think uh, still trying to analyse it myself, I would suspect that it, it's, a, it's a reflection of the volatility in markets, not necessarily a reflection of confidence. Maybe we'd seen some fairly weak conditions going into the CPI figure and that sort of sell the rumour by the fact uh, scenario might have played in. So uh, I suspect they'd be wary to take that as a, as a significant change in sentiment at this point in time, maybe more flow-driven.
Okay, Toby, thank you very much. Have a great weekend. That's Toby Lawson, the CEO of Societe Generale India. You're listening to Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. Let's take a final look at the markets for this week in Australia. A big rebound going on. The ASX 200 up one and three quarter percent. The Nikkei 225 in Japan storming ahead up two and three quarter percent right now. The Cosby also up one and three quarter percent. Looks like the Hang Seng is going to add about 250 points at the Open this morning. Thank you very much for listening this week. Have a great weekend. Please join me again on Monday morning at 8 o'clock for Money Talk. Coming up after the news is Back Chat with Janice Wong and Andrew Work. The weather forecast uh, for today going to be uh, fine and dry. Maximum temperature around 31 degrees. Continuing fine and dry on Saturday, but it's going to become cooler earlier next week. Uh, the temperature right now is 25 degrees, 71% relative humidity. 8.31, here's Barry O'Rourke with the half-hour news. The U.S. Congressional Committee investigating the storming of the Capitol building in Washington by Donald Trump supporters has called on the former president to appear before it. The committee voted unanimously to subpoena Mr. Trump. The chairman, Benny Thompson, said there was no doubt that the former president led an effort to upend American democracy that resulted in the violence on January the 6th last year. Mr. Thompson said he must be held accountable. He is required to answer for his actions. He's required to answer to those police officers who put their lives and bodies on the line to defend our democracy. He's required to answer to those millions of Americans who votes he wanted to throw out as part of his scheme to remain in power. So it is our obligation to seek Donald Trump's testimony. Mr. Trump has dismissed the hearings and asked why he wasn't asked to testify earlier. A jury in the United States has recommended that the gunman who killed 17 people in a school shooting at Parkland in Florida should be sentenced to life in prison without the chance of parole. Nicholas Cruz, who's 24, had pleaded guilty to carrying out the killings four years ago at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School. But his lawyers argued that he should be spared execution because of long-standing mental health problems. The parents of those who died in the attack condemned the verdict. Fred Gutenberg, whose daughter Jaime said Cruz, who, who lost his daughter Jaime, said Cruz should have received the death penalty. This jury failed our families today. But I will tell you, the monster is going to go to prison, and in prison, I hope and pray he receives the kind of mercy from prisoners that he showed to my daughter and the 16 others. He is going to go to prison, and he will die in prison. And I will be waiting to read the news on that. The head of NATO, Jens Stoltenberg, says the military alliance will soon provide Ukraine with dozens of jammers to counteract Russian and Iranian drones. Speaking after a meeting in Brussels, Mr Stoltenberg said NATO defence ministers had agreed to increase stockpiles of munitions and were increasing protection of their critical infrastructure following the sabotage of Baltic gas pipelines. Allies are increasing security around key installations and we are stepping up our intelligence sharing and surveillance across all domains from space to undersea capabilities. We also agreed to enhance the resilience of critical undersea and energy infrastructure. And finally, the South Korean military says North Korea has fired another ballistic missile into the sea off its east coast. It's the latest in a recent series of test launches conducted by Pyongyang. The Joint Chiefs of Staff in Seoul also said the North had flown military aircraft close to the two countries' border late last night. More news on the hour from RTHK. 
Good morning. This is Back Chat for Friday, October the 14th. Welcome to the show. I'm Andrew Work. And I'm Janice Wong. On today's Back Chat, we are looking ahead to 